Genesis uh, chapter 39, as we make our way through the book, considering the, the last and longest section of the book of Genesis, the generations of Jacob, which is really a tale of two sons. Last week we considered uh, Judah, uh, in all uh, the story of Judah, in all of its sordid details. And this week we go back to considering his other son, Joseph. And so uh, I'd like to read to us the whole chapter, chapter 39. Let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. Now Joseph had, brought, had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as Joseph spoke, and, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie, uh, he came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and I cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment until her, and, and by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave favor, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him 
And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Thus far as the reading of God's holy word, let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. Thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. And we pray, Lord, that as your word is proclaimed, that you would pierce our hearts by your truth, that you would uh, grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved of the Lord, in our passage, we pick up in the story of Joseph where we left off at the end of chapter 37, where his brothers, motivated by their hatred and jealousy of Joseph, had sold him as a slave to the traders who brought him down to Egypt. And we are told that, that when he was brought down to Egypt, he was bought there by Potiphar, the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. You see, Joseph, when we first were introduced to him, had gone from being the favored son of his father to a lowly slave in a foreign land. And so when it speaks of him going down into Egypt, we ought to think not only of the physical descent it would take to go to that land, but also going down in the sense that he is humbled, he is humiliated, he is brought low as he is sold as a slave in the foreign land. And as, as he was being transported in chains and sold at auction, you must have wondered, we must wonder what Joseph had been thinking, especially with regard to those dreams that he had had, those dreams that he had told his brothers where he, he saw that they were bowing down to him, and yet now he is far away as a slave in a foreign land. And yet it is at this point, this low point in the life of Joseph, that we are told in verse 2 that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him with his protective presence here in this foreign land. Much the same way that the Lord appeared to Jacob as he was fleeing the wrath of his brother Esau. The Lord appeared to him in that night vision and said, I will be with you. I will go with you and I will bring you back to this place. So here in Joseph's life, we are told that the Lord was with him, continued to be with him with his protective presence. This would have been an important point for the Israelites to keep in mind as they recounted this story of their forefather in the faith, Joseph, having been a slave in Egypt, where they too found themselves enslaved to the Egyptians, that the Lord had not abandoned them, but that the Lord was with them. And even later in redemptive history, as God speaks of another time in which he will restore his people from exile, he says in Isaiah 41, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. See, that promises for each and every one of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as the author to the Hebrews reminds us that he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's important to be reminded, especially at the low points in our lives, when we're going through difficulty, when we wonder where is God in all of this, it's at these points that Scripture reminds us he's there with us. And as with his forefathers, we see that the Lord's blessing in Joseph's life is displayed primarily in material prosperity. You see, God was with Joseph. Even though he was sold as a slave, he nevertheless was able to turn that evil into good in that everything that Joseph did was successful. He had the golden touch. 
And his master saw that very clearly in verse 3. Success for Joseph spelt success for Potiphar. In much the same way that Jacob was enabled to enrich his uncle Laban as he served him 20 years, so here Joseph, his son, is able to enrich his master as Potiphar uh, elevates him, bringing him from being uh, working in the fields to being a household slave to ultimately being the one in control of his entire house. See, we see uh, Jake, uh, Joseph, because of the Lord's blessing, is elevated quickly in, into this uh, position of authority. And so after the spiteful and humiliating treatment of his brother, uh, of his brothers, we see the Lord exalt Joseph to a position of power. Now, ultimately, this is not where he would like to be. This is God making the best of the situation. Joseph, of course, would love to be back with his family uh, or back in his father's house. But you see here, the Lord is, uh, although Jacob, Joseph was humiliated, he is now exalting him to a position of, of power. And as a result of that, we see in verse 5 that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house. You see, this is a pattern that we see throughout the book of Genesis where God had promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so here we see this in in a token manner, the the mere presence of, of Joseph in the household serves as a blessing to Potiphar, who is who is exalting him to this position of authority. And he trusted Joseph so much He trusted in his effective rule that he had nothing to worry about. He trusted everything over to him so that all Potiphar had to worry about when he got home was what he was going to have for dinner. Let's see, should I have steak or should I have lobster? Maybe both. You see, Joseph was blessing his household. He was ruling his household. And as he said later on, I am equal to my master in every respect in the household. And so here we see the blessing of the Lord in Joseph's life, taking a a, a very unfortunate situation and turning it for good. And to top it all off, we're told that Joseph was handsome as well. He had good looks, uh, following, uh, getting it, no doubt, from his mother, who also is described in this way, uh, being being uh, good-looking in form and appearance. And yet this blessing of good looks that Joseph has ultimately becomes a curse and a trial as we read that Potiphar's wife began to lay eyes on Joseph. Seeing him around the house, she begins to notice this good-looking slave. And we see as, as, she, uh, as she notices his good looks, she attempts to seduce him, coming to him and saying, lie with me. You see, her short, impassioned demand stands in stark contrast to Joseph's lengthy refusal. He denies her. He says, no, I will not do this. And he gives her three reasons why he, uh, why he is refusing her advances. Number one, it would be an abuse of the, of the trust that was placed in him. He says, my master trusts me implicitly. I will not abuse that trust by sleeping with you. And then he goes on to say, not only that, but it would be a, a, an offense against my master who has given me all of these things and withheld only you because you are his wife. And then third and finally, and perhaps most significantly, he refuses 
uh, his, the wife's uh, advances because he says, I will not do this great evil and sin against God. You see, that is the most important reason and motivation in Joseph's mind. He will not do this sin against God. You see, ultimately, all sins are sins against God. Even though uh, if, if he had... Uh, uh, it, if he had gone forward with this, he would have been sinning against not only her and Potiphar as well as himself. Ultimately, he sees all sins as sins against God, much the same way that David, in his uh, in in his Psalm of, of Confession, Psalm fifty one, that he penned after sleeping with Bathsheba, and ultimately putting Uriah the Hittite to death, he says, "Against you and you only have I sinned." and done what is evil in your sight. And we wonder, David, what are you talking about? You've sinned not only against God, you've sinned against Bathsheba, you've sinned against Uriah, you've sinned against your people, you've sinned against yourself. But you see, at the end of the day, he sees all of those sins ultimately as sins against God as well, as we confess on a regular basis by sinning against uh, our neighbors. We have also sinned against God in whose image they were created. So here we see Joseph's impassioned and eloquent and thoughtful response to Potiphar's wife as she gives, her, gives him this demand, lie with me, and he refuses her. Now this may have been, this must have been surprising for Potiphar's wife to hear. Uh, slaves apparently in the ancient world were thought to be very promiscuous, and, and it would have been very common for slaves to get in, give in to demands as such as this. But this is surprising for us, especially for those of us who have been going through the book of Genesis. This is surprising for us, not only for for us to hear a slave to say, but even for a man to say in the book of Genesis. So far in the book of Genesis, I cannot count of one instance where a man has not given in to sexual temptation. Not only Judah and Reuben, Joseph's older brothers, but even men like Abraham and Jacob. When, when given uh, the opportunity for the handmaidens or, or in other instances where they've sinned against their wives, no one has refused those advances. And so here for the first time, we see somebody say, no, I will not do this. Why? Because it's a sin against God. It is a great wickedness. And yet Joseph had to do this not once, but day after day, we read that Potiphar's wife constantly was coming to him, giving him advances and trying to get him uh, to give in to this temptation, but he still refused her. Now, at this point, I think we need to appreciate the tough situation that Joseph is put in as a slave. He has no choice but to do his job. But also, as a slave, he does not have the opportunity to report his master's wife to HR for sexual harassment. And so he has to constantly put up with this as he is constantly refusing her advances. You see, in the course of time, Joseph goes in, like any ordinary day, into the house to do his work. But on this day, we read that none of the other men of the house were there. You have to wonder if perhaps Potiphar's wife had something to do with this. And yet the fact that he goes into the house and no other men are around to serve as witnesses, Potiphar's wife seizes this opportunity in verse 12 
She literally jumps on top of him, grabbing him by the garment. This is a very violent word in in the Hebrew. Grabs him and issues her demand again. Now, this garment that we read of in all likelihood would have been an overcoat that men uh, would have worn. The typical dress for men in this age would be to wear uh, mid-length shorts as well as an overcoat, which would have been kind of like a nightgown, like a really long T-shirt. And so for her to grab this and literally rip it off of Joseph implies that she means business. And sensing that she was not going to take no for an answer, Joseph had no other choice but to flee from the situation. He literally left his garment, his coat, in her hand and ran not only away from her, but out of the house and away from the house. He's taking off. And so Joseph here serves as a good model for all of us when we are faced with temptation, especially for us men. As we in this age are constantly bombarded with temptation, Joseph is the perfect perfect example of what we need to do. We need to get out of there. We need to flee. And perhaps it's with this story in mind that Paul tells the Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. You see, the best way to resist temptation is to remove the source of temptation that is in your life. And scripture teaches us that there is no step that is too drastic, no step that is too extreme that we uh, shouldn't take in order to remove that source of temptation from us, as Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount with regard to the specific command of adult, of, of, um, against adultery. Our Lord says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. You see, Joseph was more than willing to part with his coat in order to resist that temptation, to get himself out of that situation. And we too ought to follow that example. As we get back to this, uh, uh, to the story in verse 13, we see now Potiphar's wife, the spurned wife of his, of Joseph's master, now standing there, perhaps in a bit of shock, looks down at her hand and realizes that she is still holding Joseph's garment. And it's at this point that she conceives a diabolical lie. She immediately calls for the men of the house. The men who had been uh, absent are now hearing her screams and her cries, and they come rushing to her aid. You see, at this point, she needs to fabricate witnesses. And we see here as she speaks to these men, she she uses uh, uh, she's she's pretty smart in trying to get them onto her side. Notice what she says uh, to the men of the house as she calls them. Uh, she says, he has brought this Hebrew in our midst. Now, who is he at this point? She's referring to her husband, Potiphar, uh, in, in verse 14, if you look there. You see, he has brought among us a Hebrew. And so she's using, uh, uh, she's, she's literally throwing her husband under the bus, tapping into the natural resentment that slaves would have towards their master, and is basically blaming her husband for bringing Joseph into their midst. 
And then notice what she, what she does when she says, he has brought uh, this Hebrew among us to laugh at us. You see, she's including herself amongst the company of the slaves. She's trying to get them on her side as she seeks to win their sympathy. She also taps into the natural fear of xenophobia, being afraid of people who are different than them, uh, calling uh, Joseph a Hebrew. This foreigner uh, has been brought among us, and no doubt at this point, also they would have had a bit of resentment towards Joseph. This one who has come in uh, and, and now assumed all of this authority, they've had to listen to this foreigner. Now she's saying, look, your master has brought this Hebrew to laugh interesting that she uses this term laugh, uh, laughing. It's a, uh, a very elastic term. So far uh, already we've seen it used in the book of Genesis to refer to mocking as Ishmael is mocking Isaac uh, at his weaning party. But it's also used to describe Isaac's behavior towards his wife as the King James translates it, uh, translates it that he was sporting with his wife, and so a very elastic, uh, ambiguous term here, as uh, as uh, Potiphar's wife uses it with regard to Joseph's alleged behavior. And notice what she says when he uh, uh, when she describes the order of events in verse fifteen. She said, "I cried, and he left." You see, here in her bald faced lie, she reverses the order of events. Uh, as a matter of fact, he left, and then she cried. But here. Uh, in reversing those events, uh, she is uh, uh, pinning the blame on Joseph. And while waiting for her husband to come home, we read that she held that garment close to her. You see, once again, uh, as she held it close to her to serve as incriminating evidence against Joseph in her lie. And so for the second time in the book of Genesis, we see Joseph's garments being used as a, in a lie against him. And as Potiphar comes home, we read in verse 17 that she told the same story, the same lie about Joseph, except now with subtle changes. Rather than referring to Joseph as a Hebrew, she simply calls him a servant. And rather than saying he's come to laugh at us, she says, you've brought him to laugh at me. And in this way, she's doing a very subtle uh, uh, shifting of the blame. Who ultimately is she blaming for this event? She's blaming her husband. Is this why you've brought him to me? Is this why you put him in the house so that he could laugh at me, so that he can uh, uh, do these terrible things to me? Well, as soon as Potiphar hears of these accusations, we read that his anger was kindled. Now, this is the action that you would expect from a jealous husband as a wife would, would make these allegations against a, uh, uh, such a person. And in response, we read in verse 20 that he put Joseph in prison. Now, this is not, this is actually not what you would expect. In the ancient world, attempted rape by a slave would almost certainly incur the death penalty. And yet Joseph seems to get off a bit easy in that he's just put in prison. Perhaps it was due to the respect and the trust that Potiphar had in Joseph, that he couldn't bring himself to put him to death. Or perhaps also, Potiphar knew a thing or two about his wife and her tendencies. And so perhaps he didn't entirely believe her story. 
And that, that makes us wonder, ultimately, what is he angry at? We read that his anger was kindled, but not, uh, we don't, we do not read against whom? Perhaps he's just angry over the entire situation in that his wife has been misbehaving and he has now lost his treasured servant. But regardless of the, of the reason, we read that he was there in prison. And so here again, we see this pattern emerge in the story of Joseph. We see him go into a state of humiliation, followed by a state of exaltation, and then followed once again by a state of humiliation. And so it is being brought low, being exalted, being brought low, being exalted. Here we see this pattern emerge. He's going to do this three times uh, throughout the story. But as we consider Joseph's plight at the end of our passage, he is now in prison, falsely accused, with no legal recourse. There's no court of appeals in this matter. There's, there's no uh, DNA evidence that could be brought forth to justify him. Ultimately, Joseph is now facing life in prison. He was spared the death penalty, but he really doesn't have much to look forward to in that he, in all likelihood, will now spend the rest of his life behind bars. And so once again, those dreams that he had where his brothers were bowing down to him are becoming less and less likely. And yet, once again, at his lowest point, we are reminded of the fact that the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 21, but the Lord was with him. He accompanied him down to Egypt. He was with him in Pharaoh's house, and now he's with him in in the dungeon. Again, we are reminded of the protective presence of the Lord, even when the external circumstances seem to suggest the contrary. Three times in this chapter, we're told that the Lord was with Joseph. And as a result of his protective presence and the steadfast love, the faithfulness that he showed to to Joseph, his servant, we read that he gave him favor in the eyes of the keeper of the prison. As in Potiphar's house, so here in prison, Joseph is elevated to a position of authority as the keeper of the prison delegates all of his responsibilities to him. See, he's picking up, uh, he's, he's picking up the same cue that, that Potiphar had. Hey, this guy's really good at what he does. I'm going to sit back and let him do all the work. But ultimately, we need to keep in mind that this exaltation, this, this promotion, this success that Joseph experiences is not ultimately due to his good behavior, his strong work ethic, or his good looks, but ultimately is due to God's sovereign hand in his life. In conclusion, as we consider this passage together, we need to keep in mind that this pattern of humiliation followed by exaltation in Joseph's life is most fully displayed in our Lord Jesus Christ, who who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He, like Joseph, also was falsely accused And yet, like a lamb that was led to slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. He was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And so as a result, we are told in in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And so here we see Christ who was humbled 
has been exalted for us and for our salvation and has won the victory for us. And so the victory that Christ has won for us is ours. And yet that victory may not look like the victory that we see in Joseph's life. You see, I think we can read uh, Genesis 39 and, and see perhaps a guy who can pull himself up by his own bootstraps. Perhaps we can tap into Joseph's recipe for success and have this unflinching ability to always end up on top, to always land on our feet, even in these situations. You see, ultimately, that's not what we're promised as New Covenant believers. We are promised the victory. We are promised uh, uh, the glory. But ultimately, it's through suffering. Our natural tendency is to want to bypass suffering and to immediately get the glory, to immediately experience that success. You see, if the Old Testament's blessing was prosperity, the New Testament's blessing is adversity. That's why James can, t- can tell us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see, this, this pattern that Jesus Christ has ultimately fulfilled, the pattern of suffering and then glory is ultimately a pattern and an example that he sets for us to follow after. This is in Mark chapter 8. Jesus told his disciples of his impending death, his humiliation, and ultimately after three days that he would rise, he then goes on to say, if any man would want to follow after me, let him take up his cross daily. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. See, this pattern that God has called us to, that our Lord Jesus Christ has set for us, this means of suffering ultimately to then enter into glory at his coming is a means by which God is able to work his power in our life through the death and suffering of Christ worked in us. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it is through the fact that we have to live lives of suffering, and we are called to this, so that the surpassing power uh, of God is displayed in us. So Paul, with confidence, can say we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. See, that's what we see in the, the, the story of Joseph. Ultimately, uh, Paul goes on to say, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. This is the pattern that Christ has followed, uh, uh, calls us to follow after. A life of suffering and death, dying to self so that the life of God, the power of God and the life of Christ might be displayed in us. Amen?